Welcome to part one of Health System CIO's interview with Mark Wiseman, CMIO at Peninsula Regional Medical Center. In this segment, Dr. Wiseman talks about how the COVID pandemic has altered his team's strategy and boosted telemedicine efforts, what CIOs can do to better understand and address the burden on clinicians, and the opportunity that brought him to Peninsula Regional. As much as 80% of patient information is unstructured and stored outside of an EMR, Highland Healthcare helps complete the patient record by consolidating and connecting this unstructured content to core clinical systems. With a full suite of content services and enterprise imaging solutions, Highland gives clinicians a single view of all documents and medical images associated with the patient via the EMR, enabling more informed health decisions and improving patient outcomes. Highland Healthcare. See your whole patient. Visit highlandhealthcare.com to learn more. Okay, Mark. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. We appreciate it, especially with everything going on. Why don't you start by giving a high-level overview of Peninsula Regional Medical Center? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kate, for having me on the show first. I appreciate it. I am currently coronavirus-free, so you don't have to worry about catching (laughs) anything from me while doing this podcast. But (laughs) <laughs> uh, Peninsula Region is a, well, two and a half hospitals. We're, we're three hospitals, I guess, but one's a little critical access hospital that I call a half hospital. Our primary base is in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and we have another hospital we just acquired the first of the year that's in the lower part of Delaware. And one's on Epic, and the other one's on Cerner. So we're kind of going through that fun time right now. And we're just under 400 beds total and about 3,500 employees and about $750 million in revenue. So that's a rough idea of of who we are as a health system. Okay. I think that uh, there's probably no better place to start than what's going on right now, because as we talk about your core objectives, I'm sure this would come up. So can you talk a bit about what your organization is doing um, in regards to, to the coronavirus outbreak? Sure. As the CMIO, my job is really making sure that we've got the tools in place that the providers are going to need. The organization is doing all kinds of things in terms of getting a tent set up out front to handle the mass volume and figuring out how to staff all the phone calls and working on testing. I mean, that's our biggest hurdle right now is just lack of access to tests and being able to understand who is really carrying it and who is not right now and trying to protect the public in terms of when someone comes into the hospital, how do we keep visitors who are sick out and things like that. So those are the tasks that the hospital's taking on. My role is really working on a little bit in case we need to do more telehealth, how can we do that? How can we make sure that we have the smart tools that we need in place to help the providers document coronavirus specific issues like self-quarantine? That's nothing that we've really put in our system before. So having right. a standardized form or, or tool that our emergency department can put in the patient instructions so that our patients know how to self-quarantine. Yeah, so talking about things like telehealth, obviously a, a lot has to be in place just in the first place to make this happen, but is this something where you've had to ramp up or what, what's really the approach there? That's a great question. 
because the financial incentives for telehealth so far have not been there for the entire country to really be wrapping their arms around and be excited about telehealth. I'm seeing little pockets of it. I see people dip their toes in it. This is really forcing the issue because we really don't want to see patients face to face if we can avoid it, if they're potentially infected, particularly in the ambulatory world. Think about the regular doctor's office that has someone with potential coronavirus in their office, how they have to disinfect that room and all the surfaces. And you're trying to see patients right. every 10 to 15 minutes. That's really going to put a cramp in your style. Now, if you yeah. can be a telehealth, that's a different beast. So I think most of us are not completely prepared for an integrated telehealth experience. So we're an Epic shop. And so we would want to use my chart and be able to have the patient with a single click or two, get a provider on the phone. And there are many health systems that have that. We don't. So we're using a little bit more clunky of a workflow using WebEx and trying to get the patient's email. And then we just send them a link and we connect. So it's not as smooth and sophisticated, but it certainly gets the job done. And we can hold a, a, a WebEx between a provider and a patient. But, you know, the telephone works too, just for kind of basic stuff and checking up on people. And so... Uh, we're still doing that today, and that still works. It's nice to lay eyes on people sometimes if you're wondering, how sick are they? Should they stay at home? Should we bring them in? But in the meantime, we'll do a mixture of things to make it work. Right. And if anything, I'm sure that, that what we're seeing right now really amplifies the need to push for telehealth and maybe, as you said, not, not have it in pockets, but more of an integrated experience. And I think I'm hearing some interest from the federal government in covering telehealth. We need all the payers to get involved and say, yes, they're going to cover it and not have the requirements of, well, you've got to be in a rural area and you have to have the patient at a facility and you've got to be at a facility and all those rules that Medicare has. They need to just waive all that and let us do our work here and kind of get some of the regulatory junk out of the way. I haven't right. seen that. I've seen some things from the federal government saying, yeah, they're they're interested in it, but now you still have to fill out this form, this 1135 form that a doctor has to fill out and request permission to get privileges, for, I guess, from Medicare to do, to get waivers on telehealth. So I don't, we're not there yet. It's not easy yet. Uh, this crisis may very well push us there. We got, we got a ways to go, make it a seamless yeah. experience for patients and providers for telehealth. Right, right. You had also mentioned helping providers, uh, you know, the documentation process. And when you're dealing with something like this, which is, you know, such a unique situation, are, are there steps that you have to take, even in terms of just making sure the right codes are there? Absolutely. And fortunately, well, maybe unfortunately, there are providers that are already going through this on the West Coast, to those in Washington, mm -hmm. particularly University of Washington and Providence St. Joe's. They've been wonderful about putting out information Here's the practical stuff you need to be doing right now. And we're just kind of following their lead here. So it's a great yeah. community that I, all the competitive pressures, they're all gone. People have too many patients. No one's worrying about competition right now. We're worrying about really just taking care of patients and make sure our providers are, are well supported. So there's certainly things that we've had to do in terms of looking about, well, we have coronavirus codes, but they're not this new coronavirus, the COVID-19. So, you know, when are those codes coming? How do we get them? We use IMO and we have to do a, an import of that data or manually enter in the codes. So we're, we're getting there. We don't currently have any cases, so I haven't had to worry about it yet, but we know they're coming. 
Yeah, sure. One of the other kind of effects of this is that I don't have to tell you that there's a problem already with uh, the burden on physicians and nurses and Something like this is scary for so many many reasons, one of which is that this could you know add to the burden. So I want to talk about how you're looking to address this this problem of burnout and having to do so many administrative tasks and your thoughts on that. So before coronavirus moved in and took over our lives, my core objectives as a CMIO this year were to make the providers' lives better and the nurses as well. And there's a couple of different ways that we were doing this. One is we were looking at our EMR and saying, what can we optimize here to make life easier? Remove the hard stops, remove the alerts that are not providing value. Really question the value of the clinical decision support that's been put in place and go to more of a prove it to me that it's working. Because what may have worked three years ago but was left in place may not be working as well today because the providers have developed the muscle memory to know exactly where to click to get past whatever support you're trying to make useful to them. So that Mm -hmm. has been a a fun project that we've been working on. The other part is optimizing the providers. Our system, for whatever the reason, it's one of the things that attracted me to come here to Peninsula Regional was that they never did optimization. So there's a huge opportunity to sit down with providers one-on-one and teach them skills, things that they didn't even know the system could do. And just they're amazed, like, wow, why have I been struggling with this thing for so long? Not knowing the tool has tremendous capabilities and they're so excited about the tool once they get a little bit of attention and learn how to optimize it. So yeah. and now with coronavirus, that's, that's still the case. They still need to know how to use those tools too. So that opportunity continues. I think the other part that we've been doing, the third and final part is really building up the governance and the informatics skill set, the infrastructure, having physician builders or provider informaticists, people who understand the value of this work and can work with others. When I came here, there was only one other provider who had the knowledge, deep knowledge of the EMR and the two of us but we couldn't sit next to each other in case a bus came along and hit us, that there'd be no one left in the system who knew anything about the EMR. So my goal has been to really train up some physician builders. We've got a good number now. And I think we're getting to a critical mass where now we can have these people on governance committees. We can have providers having a voice in how the EMR is configured. It's making a huge difference in the lives of the providers. Right, right. And I'm sure that you really don't want to see these efforts fall to the wayside. I mean, even though I guess it's like triaging, right? You have to take care of what's so urgent, but um, it's so important to not lose sight of these objectives. Yeah, because we did a provider satisfaction survey. We did the class survey and our providers were not thrilled with the EMR. We scored fairly low. So we had a lot of work to do. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we've got new priorities, but clinically, we still have the same priorities in terms of making this tool easier to use. Even in the middle of a a healthcare crisis, that's just more valuable is to make these tools easy, get the junk out of the way so our providers can do the work they need to do. Yeah, and and you have a certain understanding of it as a CMIO, but for the CIOs, Do you have any advice or any perspective on how they can really make sure that that they're effectively addressing the issue and and I guess really getting that baseline to, to know where their providers are? I think it's so important for the surveys to take place. If a system hasn't done it, class offers the survey, 
and it's relatively inexpensive. There are other surveys out there, but you got to ask. You've got to ask, how do your people think the EMR is performing? And be prepared for some comments that might hurt a little bit because the analysts feel that they're, they've been putting in years of work to making this thing better and that yet the providers come back and say, this thing's not great. And that hurts their feelings, but yeah. we have to that. We have to say, all right, how do we make it better? Work with what we got. Yes, artificial intelligence tools and ambient AI that's going to be listening to our voice and, and taking down all the notes. That'll be wonderful. And it's just starting, I think, in terms of a mass distribution of that, it's going to be a ways. So as CIOs, my advice for them is to, number one, measure. Number two is really form that partnership with the CMIO. The job of the CMIO in the past has been a lot about building relationships with providers. I think that's because the CIOs weren't as comfortable doing it. And we got to move past that. And it's got to get more to that partnership. I don't think a CIO can really be effective by ignoring the clinical part of the organization and just focusing on infrastructure or security. They really do need to be heavily invested in the clinical part and that's as in a partnership with the Chief Nursing Informatics Officer and CMIO. Right, right. Good advice. And, and you've been in your current role you know, with the organization for about a year or two at this point? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So what was it that made you interested in coming to this organization and pursuing the CMIO role? I saw an opportunity here which really intrigued me. And that part of it was the fact that they had never done optimization. And I loved doing optimization in my previous organization. I loved making life better for doctors and nurses where they can go home at the end of the day and feel like, yes, they're ready to do this again and not be just wiped out and exhausted. So that was a lot of fun. I also saw the opportunity. They really didn't have a strong governance process in place on the provider side. Nursing governance was really good. I saw an opportunity there to be able to come in and make a difference. And that's what I wanted to do. I want to make a difference in the healthcare system that I'm working for. I want to be effective. I want to have partners with other leaders in the C-suite that are interested in doing the same thing, advancing quality and reducing variation in care. And all of those opportunities existed here. The other thing I liked is that Maryland has a kind of unique payment system. It's more of a capitated model. We don't yeah. get paid for this heads in beds thing where the more clicks of the MRI machine, the better off you are. That's not the case in Maryland. So it was an interesting challenge of how do we reduce the cost of delivering care because you really are financially incentivized in the right way in this state. And I don't want people to come into the hospital if they don't need to because that's expensive for us as well as not good for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting what uh, I've heard in past interviews from talking about uh, Maryland's model, and it would be really nice to see that kind of pick up more. But um, you know, obviously these things don't always move as quickly as we'd like. But um, I, you know, the benefits just seem so obvious. I agree. I think the financial incentives in our healthcare system is one of those things that really holds us back from moving successfully into value-based care, into population health. There are many things that I think interfere with our ability to do that, part of which is the investment in healthcare IT. To do it right requires a strong investment in some tools, but the financial incentives aren't there, so the ROI isn't there, and the CFO is going to be like, 
yeah, I'm really not terribly interested in this data analytics platform you're trying to get us to buy because return on investment isn't there and all we really need to do is get people to come into our hospital. I need to be spending that money on marketing dollars. So it really right. changes the dynamic in Maryland where you really do need to do population health. It's important. So it's a different environment. I really enjoy being a part of it. I think we'll see more of that as health systems and payers start to align a little bit more. I'm not convinced this shared savings model is going to work because it's just not enough shared savings to, to really incentivize the providers to be interested. But as that dynamic changes, and then there's a particular system that I know of where the health payer was big and bought the health system and really now has this invested partnership in making sure that patients stay healthy because they're really a health plan that bought a hospital. And it's a really right. great model. And I think they're going to do great things. So I'm excited to watch, excited to see what they do. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.